Our Father and our God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can gather to study, we can gather to learn. Thank you because through your word, we learn more about you, we see ourselves in you, and we see how to live in this world even today. I pray even as we start the book of Colossians, there is clarity, there is wisdom, there is understanding. You are revealed and we grow through that revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so happy Easter, everyone. Um, I'm so tempted to take the first 30 minutes to one hour to somehow talk about Easter. (laughs) But that shall, I don't know. I don't know. But anyways, I mean, it's, it's, I'm sure every one of us, we, we, we see the importance or we see the importance of seasons like this. I remember seeing um, someone's status yesterday and it's like, Good Friday is not a day where you, you cry or you're like, oh my goodness, why did they flog him? <laughs> um, while there's that somber reflection on how much suffering God took on our behalf. Um, it says anytime we think on that, I can't remember where I read it, that it said we should remember that it was our sins that put him on that cross. It was our sins that kept him there. At any point in time, he could have said, I'm tired. You people are, you people are disturbing me. <laughs> I'm done. And when you think of God taking on flesh, not only that, but like Philippians says, choosing to endure suffering, choosing to submit himself to his creation, choosing to go through all this for us. There's a lot of implication. Remember when we talked about Ephesians, we talked about the fact that theology doesn't stop at head knowledge. If it doesn't translate into practical application, if it doesn't translate into a response of worship, then something is wrong. You probably just read just another book. And that's why you find there are New Testament scholars today. There are Bible scholars today that are not necessarily Christian. What differentiates you from them? For one, it stops at just a mental assimilation of trying to understand who wrote this, what's the culture, what's the context, how do we interpret this? But for you, there's a practical application by the Spirit. In the death of Christ, we see the death of our sinful nature. An atheist, no matter how well-versed he is in Greek and Latin and Hebrew, he can't say the same thing. For us, we can say, oh, I can live above sin because someone died. It's more than just another text. I can live for God. I'm chosen. I I, I have an inheritance because someone paid my price. I am free to live before God without guilt, without shame, without condemnation. I'm, I'm holy. I'm righteous. We can say this because of what he did. And I'm starting like this because the theme of Colossians somehow touches heavily on the identity of Christ, on the identity of Christ, and of course, how that impacts us today. So let's open our Bibles, Colossians 1. Remember, like we said in every single epistle, what do we do? We try to figure out who's the author, of course, here being Paul, who's the audience? the church at Colossae, what's the context to which he's writing, like why, what is going on, what is he trying to address with the letter and things like that, and those are the things that make the entire Bible study process easier for us, 
I mean, there are four chapters in the book of Colossians, and we're probably going to take just two weeks. Hopefully, in Ephesians, I said we'll take three weeks. We ended up taking five. So hopefully, hopefully two weeks. Pray for me. <laughs> two weeks. But of course, if we need to go beyond that, I have no hesitations to do so. So let's look at Colossians. Again, by way of introduction, um, last week we just finished the book of Ephesians and it was an amazing journey. I'm sure all of you can can probably um, admit to that in the sense in which you see the revelation or Paul's revelation into God's ultimate plan for both the Jew and Gentile through Christ. You see, you see the design of the church and God's idea for his body, how we are to represent Christ today in authority, in power, but also in love, in conduct, and in character. You see how we are to take a stand even today. You see who God has made the believer. All those things we looked at in Ephesians, if you haven't listened to it, I beg you, <laughs> please, and don't start from one chapter. Don't say, oh, I want to understand Ephesians 4 better. Let me hear what Daniel has to say. Go through the whole thing. You don't start a letter from the middle. So now we're going into Colossians. And one thing that would stick out, you can write this down already, is the Lordship of Christ. If I want to summarize Colossians in one sentence, I would summarize it as the Lordship of Christ. While Ephesians tries to, to show you who the church is because of what Christ has done, Colossians tries to show you who Jesus is and how that makes, how that, why is that important? How did everything we just talked about in Ephesians, why is that possible? It's because of who Jesus is. So Colossians pretty much talks about the Lordship of Christ. And in it, you see that Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He is either going to be Lord of everything, not just one of the other lords, not just one of the of the of the um of the lords of man. He is Lord of all. That's the summary of the entire book. And the reason we did this right off the bat after Ephesians is because many theologians would agree that it was also written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. And so you'd see in um, um, chapter four, the same Tychicus that brought the letter to the Ephesian people, it's the same Tychicus that brought this to the people of Colossae. So the assumption is that he wrote Ephesians, he wrote Colossians, he wrote Philemon, which we're going to next, spoiler alert, <laughs> in the same time frame. And that's why we're going to read all three together. But even more than that, as we start to go on, you're going to see a lot of similarity between Ephesians and Colossians. In fact, over 70 verses out of the 155 verses in Ephesians are echoed in Colossians. So it's going to be like Ephesians recap. But then there are a lot, I think over 50 verses in Colossians that are not found in any other epistle in the New Testament. So there's a distinct theme to Colossians as well as the thoughts he has been echoing from Ephesians as well, right? And of course, you see the same pattern. In the first two chapters, Paul would explain the theology of Christ. Paul would explain who God is in Christ, who Christ is as Lord over all. And then in chapter three and four, he goes on to the practical um, implication. And so we're probably going to read through that again, even though many of those things we're going to read, we've read it before, but it's important. I might not stress it as much as I did when we read Ephesians four, five, and sorry, five and six, but I would still touch on it because 
it's important. We can't, we shouldn't get to a point where all we want to do in Bible study is, oh, we just, oh, I, I've learned something new from a theological perspective. And that's beautiful. But like I said, there's a reason why the, the epistles would also devote several chapters to its practical application in your life. Because as a believer, like I said, what differentiates you from an unbeliever reading the same thing is the enablement by the Spirit to respond in a particular way. That is what that that is the mark of our Christian conduct. That when we see who God is in Christ, when we see the death, when we see the resurrection, there is a practical application that it gives us. There is a way in which we can say, Oh, I used to be this, but I don't do this anymore. And it's all tied to the fact that someone historically died. That is the difference for the believer. And it's so important you don't get to a point where it becomes commonplace. So you are reading Colossians 3, and Paul is saying, don't lie. Don't steal. I lied, right? No, no, no. Medit- the same way you would meditate on the first time, be like, okay, what is Paul trying to say here? In whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. What is Paul trying to say? Spend that same time meditating. That, ah, if indeed I'm a believer, I should be kind. I should be tender-hearted. I should, I should be forgiven because Jesus has forgiven me. You should sit down to reflect. Think practically. In my human relationships, am I kind? Am I angry? Do I forgive? Do I bear with the faults of others? So you will not just be that person who can say, Oh, Easter, I know what Jesus did in the resurrection. I know my place in his work. And what he did, he said that I did. <laughs> and all of that. But do you see the practical application on a day-to-day basis? Do you see that, oh, wow, like, oh, wow, ideally I would have vexed for this person, but I'm not angry. Jesus has changed my life. It is as deep (laughs) as the theological parts. And that's what I really, I I don't want to, because we'll see the same thing in, in Romans. We're going to see the same thing in many other episodes where there is practical application. Practical application. Don't let it be like, ah, oh, we're not doing theology. I'll wait till we start again, till we get to Romans or till we get to Hebrews, the deep stuff. This is also deep stuff. Again, remember what we read in Ephesians 5. What is the goal? If the church could somehow all decide to walk in the Spirit, if the church could somehow decide to all live as children of light, <laughs> it's <laughs> a lot of, I, I, it's, it's not a substitute for the preaching of the gospel, but let me tell you, it goes a long way in already making a statement to the world around us that indeed we're different. I, I explained all of this and I don't want to go over it so much again. Jesus said it, that by the way you love one another, men will know that you are my disciple. He said that when you guys are one, then they would see that indeed God sent me. So our conduct, our love walk, all these things that we are reading in the in, as response to salvation, it is so crucial. It's so crucial. How did I get here? I don't know. I just felt I should. I, <laughs> I can't. I can't remember. But yes. Um, so that's that. Um, so we're going to read on in Colossians. Hi, Jed. You're getting a special podcast on this recording. I've missed you so much. Welcome back. Um, but 
wow, I don't remember what I was saying. <laughs> Anyways, that is Colossians. I would remember how I, I got there. So, yes, let's go on. So, again, um, what else can we see from the book of, of Colossians? Another thing is Paul didn't start this church. Paul didn't start this church, which is which is ironic. Um, the assumption is that it was likely Epaphras, right, which we're going to get introduced to in the course of the letter. Um, he was the one that started the church. And the idea is that um, Colossae was a small city located close to Ephesus. And so probably as a result of Paul's work, remember we said Paul taught every day for two years in, um, in, in um, Ephesus. So there is already the assumption that people would also come from neighboring cities. People would grow. Imagine Paul teaching every day for two years. Ah. <laughs> so the assumption is that Epaphras was also a disciple of Paul and then took the gospel to Colossae and started the church in Colossae. Again, these are just historical things. We cannot be 100% sure, but most likely that's how it went. But then, so the book of Colossians tried to address. Let's get into the meat of it now. The assumption is that Epaphras would give a report to Paul during his time in imprisonment that, oh, the church is thriving, um, we're growing in the Lord. But these are some of the issues we are, we are facing as a church. In Galatians, it was the Judaizers coming to say that unless you are circumcised, your, your salvation is still, it still remains small. <laughs> you have not finished paying for your full subscription. In Colossae, it was a, it was a place where there were a group of people called Gnostics, and we're going to get to them again in First John. The word Gnosis has to do with knowledge, right? And there were people who claimed to hold on to some form of spiritual enlightenment. They claimed that Jesus was not enough, that Jesus was just one of the steps into attaining spiritual enlightenment, into attaining wisdom. They didn't believe things like within them that didn't believe that Jesus came in the flesh because there was the assumption that anything physical is by nature evil, right? So Jesus could not have taken on flesh. And also by implication, they don't believe that sin in the body is a real thing because again, anything done in the flesh is inherently evil. So the ultimate goal is some spiritual plane of existence where you are, you've attained knowledge. It's kind of like what meditation people do today that you, the, the assumption that you can meditate to a point where you completely detach from your physical body and you exist like avatar states. <laughs> that's the perfect that's the perfect example. It's like avatar states. So those were the kind of people that the Colossian church were dealing with. Um, there was a lot of mysticism. There was a lot of assumption that was just, just one of the many ways to attaining that point of um, of spiritual enlightenment. There was the assumption that Jesus is, is one of the many gods, one of the many beings, right? And then you add that to the Judaizers who were also there <laughs> insisting that you had to keep the laws of Moses to somehow be a Christian. So there was a lot going on. The point where there was Jesus was not the only way. He was just one of the many parts. And the ultimate goal was some sort of spiritual utopia where you are so enlightened, you are so, you are, basically everything makes sense, right? That was the idea. And then there was also the Jewish influence trying to steer them away to become Jewish Christians, which we've already looked at extensively in Galatians. So that is just an overview of the problems 
the Colossian church was facing. Of course, this will come from outside the church, but also false believers like we learned in Galatians that existed within the church. I'm taking my time to explain all of this. You might wonder, why is it necessary? The reason many times we misinterpret so many portions of scripture is because we don't have the backstory. So for instance, if you read a letter and the person is saying, oh, when you when you get there, make sure you have, uh, put bandage, make sure you don't do this. And you're like, okay, what's going on? It would help if you know that, oh, the person just had an injury. And so that is why the letter is saying, do this, do this, and do this. If not, you'll be a crazy person to just start applying bandage when nothing is wrong with you. So it's the same thing. The idea is whenever you read the epistles, whenever you read your Bible, in a sense, you are time traveling. You are going back 2,000 years ago to a world that has a completely different language, different culture. In fact, the only thing that unites you people is number one, the gospel of Christ, and number two, that you are both human beings. Everything else is very different. The culture, the context, the situation to which that letter was written, all of that, very different. So you need to take out time. And if you can, um, if you can get a study Bible or a commentary that has Usually before books start, there are some commentaries or some Bibles or stuff like that that have like little descriptions of what was happening, why was the letter written and stuff like that. It will go a long way. For instance, when we get to Romans, you will start to see, ah, I'm so excited for Romans, but you will start to see why Paul is, he's as if he's talking to two groups of people or sometimes it's as if he's speaking in a certain way, he's making a certain point everything there is literally tied to the audience he's writing to if you miss that your entire study you will still learn but you will miss a lot of vital things that the, the audience makes them to shine a lot more just like first john about this same gnostic thing we're talking about when we get to first john you start to see why john would say things like um if any man um, says that he has not sinned he lies He's not saying that if I, I come out on the street and I say, I'm a perfect guy. No, it was audience specific. Like I just told you, the assumption was like, because everything material is inherently evil, then there's really not such a thing as sin in the body because everything in the body is already wrong. That's not the plan. The body is going to be, everything physical is going to be destroyed. So it doesn't matter. So that's why John will say things like, if you say, or if you claim you have no sin, you lie. Or that's why, for instance, in Colossians, Paul would emphasize the humanity of Jesus. He would emphasize the fact that his death was physical. It's not by accident. He's trying to buttress or he's trying to counter a prevailing thought in his day. Amen. All right. I think that's, that's a pretty um, decent place to stop by way of introduction. So turn your Bibles, get out your notes. I'm reading from the NKJV, Colossians 1, verse 1. Amen. All right. Already, it's already 9.25, so I'm assuming <laughs> my two-chapter goal is already, is already fading away from me. But we'll see how we go. All right, let's start. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Of course, phrases like this you should be very common with now, after Ephesians and... and um, and Galatians, Paul alluding to his authority as an apostle. It's by the will of God, not according to any man. So the point there is, even though I didn't start your church, 
even though um, I'm not I'm not the one that established you, but I can speak to you as an apostle. I can speak to you as one who has been sent by God. Remember what we did in Ephesians chapter 4, an apostle, apostolos, a sent person. So Paul is saying, I can speak to you. Why? Because I have been sent by God. That's the idea. He now says, to saints, faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace and peace, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. And I told you, again, when you read things like this, don't skip over don't just skip over. Paul calls them saints. Paul calls them faithful. This is their identity. A people he has never met. A people he doesn't know what's going on. He says, you are saints. You are holy. So this is your identity in Christ. And you should learn to see that. He now says, to the peace from God our Father and what? The Lord Jesus Christ. You can take this as an assignment. Whenever you see the Lord or Lord in Colossians, highlight it. Remember I told you the, the underlying theme of Colossians is to show the supremacy or the lordship of Jesus over everything. And we're going to see that more and more as we go on. So as we see Lord, just highlight it. And maybe just count one <laughs> in your Bible. Let's go on. Verse 3, it says, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in, in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. And we looked at this, this word, your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. It's also in Ephesians 1. It's in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. Your faith in Jesus, your love for all the saints. There's a direct correlation there. Your faith in Christ, and I explained this in Ephesians 1, is seen in your love for the saints. So you can't claim to have faith in Jesus and somehow you don't love the brethren. Why? Because you are part of the same body. If you truly believe in Jesus, then you will believe in the body he has built through his death. <laughs> and you would love them because you identify with them. Also verse 3, what does it say? Praying always for you. Again, a people he has never met. And this brings to mind some of the discussion we looked at in Ephesians 6, the armor of God. Again, if you've not listened to that, I would advise you do. But the idea in the armor of God being something that we as a body, remember, we as a body can do to withstand the influences and the devil to stop us from being the church God intends. That's the context of the armor of God. And one of them, after he talked about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and he goes on in verse 18, he says, praying always. So he didn't just say, okay, my teaching on uh, body parts and, and breastplates and helmets has finished. Let's move on to prayer. No, no, no. One of the ways in which we stand, one of the ways with which we resist the wiles of the enemy is by praying for the saints. So the same way you would see in, if you've watched like 300, for instance, or medieval battle errors, when they like take a battle formation and all of them put up their shield and then it becomes an impenetrable wall. If any one of those people fall and like they don't do what they're supposed to do, it would affect other people in that, in that battle formation. So the idea is when we all take a stand the way we are meant to, it helps one another. So I told you, if you ever read Ephesians again and you think about it just about yourself, you are missing, in fact, the biggest theme of Ephesians. The idea is we can pray for one another. And by doing so, we all stand. 
we all stand. So that's why Paul can say in verse 3 here, I'm praying always for you, even though I've not met you, because it's important. I'm praying always for you. We'll see that in 2 Corinthians, where Paul talks about his ministry. Again, it's like I'm saying, don't miss Romans. Don't miss 2 Corinthians. Don't miss anyways. Um, let's go on. It says, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the gospel, in the word of the truth of the gospel. So if you if you read this, you should your mind should start flashing to Ephesians 1, where it says that you may know the hope of your calling. That you may know the hope of your calling. He says it here again. There is a hope laid up for you in heaven. And I told you, um, what, what is that hope? The glorification of the believer. You will see that in Romans 8. The glorification of the believer that at the return of Christ, when all things will be consummated in Christ, we identify, we identify with that experience and we are changed. More on that on Romans 8. Glory to God. <laughs> but then you look at verse 4 and verse 5 and you see faith in, in Jesus, love for the saints and hope. 1 Corinthians 13, faith, love and hope. Again, what they'll call the cardinal pillars of Christianity. But that's just a, um, a cool observation. But let's go on. It says, which has come to you as it also has in all the world, referring to the gospel, right? And by the world, it means the world that he knows then, the entire Roman world, all both Jews and Gentiles, everyone is hearing the gospel. Even some guy from Ethiopia is hearing the gospel, right? So the idea is the gospel is spreading. It says it's bringing forth fruits as it has also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Interesting. Paul calls their hearing of the gospel, them knowing the grace of God. We saw that in Ephesians 2 when it says that God in ages to come will show, will become demonstrations of his kindness. That if anyone wants to ask, God, are you kind? God, are you gracious? What will he do? He'll say, look at the church. Look at the church. And it's the same thing here. He says, the gospel is actually you coming to know the gospel is you coming to know the grace of God in truth. Amen. In verse 7, it says, as you have learned from Epaphras. So that's why I said he's most likely the one who started this church. Our dear, our dear fellow servants, our dear fellow servants, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf? Again, we looked at these words. These are just... You're starting to see why a lot of the things we discuss play. The more you read the epistles, the better you understand the epistles. So here he calls him a faithful servant. And I told you in Ephesians 6, you see the word, beloved brother, faithful minister. Beloved brother, faithful minister. And I said, in our Christian identity, we are bounded by love. In Christian service, we are marked by faithfulness. I'll say that again. In Christian identity, we are bounded by love as brothers and sisters. In Christian service, we are marked by faithfulness. And so if you are a minister of the gospel, which we all are, what is the mark? It's faithfulness. Can you do what God asked you to do? How faithful are you to the work you've received? So here, Epaphras is called what? A faithful minister. It says, who also declared, let me start to... <laughs> to speed up a bit who also declared to us your love in the spirit it says for this reason also since the day we heard it we don't cease to pray for you again ephesians 6 18 right praying for saints everywhere now what does he pray about 
In Ephesians 1, we saw what Paul prayed about, that you may know the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance and sin, the power that is at work in you, according to the power that he wrought in Christ just when he raised him from dead and set him at his own right hand, far above every principality and power, above every name that is named, not only in this world, but in this calm, and has made him to be the head over all things to the church. Also, it says that you may receive wisdom and spiritual and um, revelation in the knowledge of God. Right? In Ephesians 3, we pray the same thing, that you may be strengthened with strength in your inner man by the Spirit. Right? That you may be rooted and grounded in love, whereby you'll be able to grasp, as all saints should, the height, the breadth, the depth, the length of the love of Christ. And you may be filled with the knowledge of God. So you see things like knowledge. I told you that when you've gone to labor on theology, this is who you are. Remember Ephesians 1, right? Very amazing chapter. We're all rejoicing and happy. Oh, in Christ I'm chosen. In Christ I'm forgiven. In Christ I've received an inheritance. In Christ I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit. He says, I pray that you may know wisdom by the Spirit, revelation by the Spirit. I pray that you may know the hope to which you've been called to, that you may know the inheritance you have. In Ephesians 3, he prayed for a practical application. Jesus already dwells in them, but it says, I pray that Christ will dwell in your heart by faith. He says, I pray that you are strengthened. So now what is he praying for again in Colossians 1.9? He says, I pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Again, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And one of the things I told you when we talked, I think Ephesians 4, is that becoming a good Bible student is not just knowing what the apostles taught. Being a good New Testament, a student of the epistles, is not just knowing what they said. It's also knowing to the degree they said it. Emphasis. Emphasis is almost as important, if not just as important as the content. Because imagine if you are baking a cake. It's not enough to know the ingredients. <laughs> if you say, oh, add water, add eggs, separate the yolk and the... Don't worry, I, I know small baking. I've, I've helped my mom a couple of times. Put the dry butter to get, separate the wet one, the whatever, the liquid one separate. It's not enough to know what the ingredients are. If you don't know, put a teaspoon of salt. <laughs> you people start eating Lot's wife when you are done because it will not be cake. So even nature makes it clear that what is not just enough. You need to know to what degree. And that's why you can, it's very, you, for instance, you study things like movement. When we say holiness movement, this one movement. And you start to see that indeed, everything those movements stood for were biblical. What became the problem? Emphasis. Emphasis. So a good student of the word does not just see what the word says. Pay attention to the emphasis. Here we see the prayers of the apostles. What are they centered around? The emphasis is always spiritual growth. It's always knowledge. It's always knowledge. Of course, there's prayer for well-being. But like I said, emphasis. You don't have 12 months as a pastor. 10 of those months is um, breaking ground, breaking new grounds. Uh, <laughs> men and that, that's, that's all you're talking about for 10 months you are not a student of the apostles you are not a student of the early church why? because that was not their emphasis John said I pray I wish above all things that you're always well I, I hope you're doing well so yes G and Paul said my God will supply um, um, all your needs in Philippians 4 according to his riches in glory but emphasis what did he spend the most? If you ask, if you give Paul 10 hours, what is he going to spend eight hours praying for? For knowledge, for growth, 
for for strength to stand effective against the, the plans of the enemy against the church. So don't just be that believer that just knows the what. Know to the what length. Know the what length. Amen. Very important. I digress. Let's go on. <laughs> that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Colossians 1.10, that's where we are. That we may walk. So do you see what he's praying for? It's the same thing in Ephesians. First of all, that you may know. Why should you know? So that there will be a practical implication in your day-to-day Christian experience. Again, it's the same thing. Any theology that stops in knowledge, it's 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 pride. It's not of it's not of it's not the will of God. Theology should translate to love work. Theology should translate to good Christian conduct. It says fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work. You see, so the fruits it, the fruits of, of of our salvation, just like Ephesians one ten, right? We are the Ephesians two ten rather, the workmanship of God created in Christ to do the good things which God beforehand ordained that we walk in. So the fruit of salvation is seen in our works. It says, I'm increasing in the knowledge of God. So knowledge and response. Knowledge and response. Again, in verse 11, what does it say? Strengthened. That's Ephesians 3. Strength. Strength so that you you know what you're meant to do. I pray that you do it, but that you're also strengthened. Why? Because there will be hindrances. There will be culture. There will be the plan of the enemy who always wants to stop you from being who you ought to be as a Christian. So I pray that you are strengthened according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering in joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of life. This is Ephesians 1 and 3 again. That what? I pray that you know. I pray that you respond. I pray that you are strengthened even in the midst of of, um, persecution and, and all of that that you are able to bear. But not just that, in verse 12, that you are able to remain thankful through it all. And that's what you're going to see all through the epistles. That is what they prayed for. That is what they prayed for. In verse 13, it says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. It says, in whom, this is literally Ephesians 1, 7, right? In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So he he, he opens up by what? Reminding them, Jesus has forgiven you. You've been transformed. You've been changed from king from darkness to light. Therefore, I'm praying that you may know. I'm praying that you would walk. I'm praying that you are strong. I'm praying that you can bear all things. I'm praying that you are thankful through it all. That's the summary of the Christian experience. Honestly, if you have nothing else to pray for, for yourself or for other believers, you can't go wrong with this. Knowledge, response, strength to persevere, and grace to remain thankful. Knowledge, response, strength to persevere, and the grace to stay thankful through it all. That is the summary of our Christian experience. Amen. Let's go on. Now he starts to... Take it a step further. In Colossians 1.15, what does he say? For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Well, I will not be firstborn. Thank God me, I'm firstborn. (laughs) Anyways, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. I'm going to get to that. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created 
through him and for him pause so now let's start paul calls jesus the image the image of the invisible god this is such an important scripture because people will tell you that oh paul is saying that and again remember the gnostics jesus is just another creation he was maybe some people would even be as noble to say he was the ultimate creation and then through him god created everything else when it says image is the word icon or what we know as icon it's it, it's literally the the statue or the physical representation of something So literally an image if i make a, a stone statue of someone or if i draw someone that's an image it represents and it says the first born it's the word prototopos in the greek let's get to what it really means so when you see the word image remember we looked at this both in galatians and ephesians and i told you that this literally brings genesis 1 to fulfillment So when God said let us make man in our own image and in our likeness and yes he says in his own image and likeness created he them but then you get to the epistles and he says Jesus is actually the image of God is there a contradiction of course not and when um this question was asked lad what did i explain i i talked about how there is a sense in which in the physical yes in the sense in which we are to to dominate the world and we were actually meant to represent god in the earth so in that sense we are the image of god but because of the fall because of sin and again in ephesians 1 from the ultimate foreknowledge plan of god who is the what is that fulfillment of genesis 1 where it says let us make man in our own image it's seen in christ colossians second corinthians rather 3m4 talks about it the image of god Jesus is the image of God. Here we see it again. Jesus being the image of God. Hebrews 1, we see it again. Jesus is the image of God. The man, Jesus. So in a sense, the fulfillment of that scripture in Genesis, while there is a sense in which both believers and unbelievers, we are all the image of God because in a sense we represent all that God wanted us to be in the world. But because of the fall and all of that and not to to digress too much, but there is a sense in which only those who are in Christ are truly carriers of the image of God are truly made remember Ephesians 2:10 his workmanship his workmanship so Jesus is the fulfillment of God's ultimate plan for humanity which was what to make man in his image and then in Christ we we identify with that more on that in Hebrews 1 i'm just living sprinklers yeah <laughs> but more on that in hebrews 1 and so even in the sense of first born so we've looked at image let's look at first born so people say ah you see first born you created the first one and then no <clears throat> let's look at some of the words for first born so for instance the word first born could literally mean first born right it's like your first child so in luke 2:7 where it says um she brought her firstborn son Mary and Jesus Jesus was literally the firstborn of Mary but there's also a sense in which it is figurative in Exodus 4 verse 22 Exodus 4 verse 22 it says you shall say to Sarah and Pharaoh thus says the Lord Israel is my son my firstborn did Jesus physically give birth to the millions of Israelites at that time of course not so what does firstborn mean let's look at it Psalm 89 verse 27. Psalm 89 verse 27. This is David. It says, "I would make him my firstborn, 
the highest of kings um on the earth actually it has a a proper fulfillment in Christ but i'm not going to do that <laughs> i'm sorry but time will not permit us but in the sense in which i would make him my firstborn the highest of kings on the earth so what does it mean here for that king to be god's firstborn this is this is a grown man he says i will make him my firstborn so what does it mean i would exalt him to a position of authority the idea of a firstborn was used to to denote superiority or supremacy right so when god says he would make that king his firstborn first of all even in the in the immediate context david is last born <laughs> right so he can't it's not it's not it's not literal he simply means i would exalt him to a place of superiority and that is the same thing he's saying here that jesus in stepping into creation took up a place of superiority he is greater he is far above all creation that's the idea it's not it's not saying god made him or um god god somehow created him some 89 verse 27 some 89 verse 27 so it has nothing to do with the time of existence it's it's a reference of position not time the title their firstborn again that's it it's a title of position it's not a title of time it doesn't mean there was a point in which he was made and then he was then um, from there all the other so all everything else in creation is jesus's younger brother that's not the idea it's a statement of position that jesus is god's representation not only that he is supreme over all creation does that make sense thumbs up thumbs up thumbs up does that make sense does that make sense all right awesome so why is he using these words again he's trying to show that jesus is not a creation even though he stepped into creation so that's why he uses things like image that's why he uses things like firstborn over all creation because remember philippians 2 though he was he he, he didn't think it robbery to be equal with god yet he humbled himself and took upon the self of the um, the form of a servant so jesus though being one with god in the incarnation he stepped into creation he chose to identify with creation and chose to reveal who was once an invisible god jesus said no one has seen god at any time yet the son of man has declared him has declared him or john rather i said jesus <laughs> right has declared him he has revealed him he is the image so in the incarnation in jesus becoming flesh we see him becoming the image of god we see him becoming firstborn over all creation he now says what for by him all things were created and i think even just from a common sense this is common sense right for by him all things were created meaning nothing was created outside him so he can't have been created i i think that's that just that alone is common sense if everything that if everything created is through him he can't have been created even though that would be secular reasoning because he would have created himself <laughs> that i think that's common sense but anyways it says for by him all things were created that are in heaven that are on earth again i've told you heaven doesn't mean um up where uh, like heaven where we go to after we not in that sense the idea of heaven we looked at it heavenly places in ephesians 1 3 heavenly places in, in um, ephesians 6 spiritual wickedness in heavenly places it just refers to spiritual so that's why it says heaven and earth meaning spiritual and physical 
So he created everything spiritual. He created everything physical, right? Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities and powers, all things were created through him and for him. So look at verse 16. He starts saying by him. He ends by saying through him and he says for him. So the, 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 this, the, when he says by him, meaning the path through which everything was created is Christ. It says through him, the agency through which everything was created is Christ. For him, the purpose to which everything was created is Christ. So this cannot be just a mere man because by him, everything was created. Through him, everything was created. For him, everything was created. It says he is what? Before all things, meaning he is timeless. And in him, all things consist, meaning he is all-powerful. So can you see that Paul cannot be making a case for the um, that Jesus is not God? In fact, that's the opposite of what he's doing. He literally just said, by him, through him and for him, everything is before all things. He's in him, all things consist. This is a Jew talking. If it was a Gentile, now we can still even argue, but no, this is a Jew. This would have been the height of blasphemy if Paul was not saying Jesus is God. For you to say this of anything other than God, it doesn't even make sense. Timeless, all-powerful. It says he is the head of the body. This is Ephesians 1, right? The church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And now this word here is the word protos. He is the first from the dead. So in a, in a sense, because he, and it's, it's amazing, this is the Easter season, right? But because he defeated death, because he rose from the dead, we also identify as his body in the sense in which we also will be raised from the dead. More on that in Romans 6. <laughs> that in all things, okay, so if everything is more on that, what am I actually talking about here? Don't worry, I have my emphasis for conversion. It's not any of these topics. That's why if I should delve into any of these ones, it's good. We'll spend four weeks. <laughs> I don't want that to happen. But <laughs> it says, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in all things, he may have the preeminence. Do you see that now? In all things, he may have the preeminence. So over the universe, over the resurrection, over the church, everything, every context you can think of, Jesus has been made to be the one who has the preeminence. Who, 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 um, who is, the word preeminence, there's the word proteo. He's first in rank, first in influence, first in position. Amen. It says, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. I love what John MacArthur says here. It says, this is a term likely used by those in the Colossian heresy to refer to divine powers and attributes they believe were divided among various emanations. Paul countered that by asserting that the fullness of deity, whatever divine power and attribute, it wasn't spread out among created things, but it completely dwelt in Christ alone. Does that make sense? I just literally read verbatim what he said. 
So the idea, and I, I mean, I don't know if you've met people like that. I have um, where you see people that say, oh, Jesus is just one of the many gods. Okay, so whether it's Buddha, whether it's um, Hinduism, whether it's whatever, it's just different beings that through which, whether it's Shango, <laughs> I don't know if we have Shango worshippers in the house today, <laughs> whether it's Shango or Rumila or <laughs> any of these people, or Thor, right? Your own god is Thor or Odin. These are not just beings through which, okay, this is my own spiritual pathway to go. He says, all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. All the fullness of deity, it pleased the Father that all the fullness of deity should dwell in Christ. And it says, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or in heaven, heaven, whether things on earth or things in heaven haven't made peace through the blood of his cross. So now you can see why Paul would emphasize the blood of his cross to show that it was a physical death. So in as much as I've just hyped Jesus and I've, I've made it clear that he's God or he, is ex he exists as the fullness of deity, he also died. His blood was shed on the cross. So he is fully man, fully God. It says, and through him, all things were reconciled to the Father. Again, on the dichotomy of the Son and the Father, we would look more on that in 1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about how everything was handed, um, Jesus, the Father made the Son to be head over all things, and that excludes the Father, and then at the end, Jesus will hand over everything to the Father. That's 1 Corinthians. We'll look at that when we cross, when we get to that bridge. But the idea, and when you see the word reconcile, I, I, I think I heard this first from Pastor Marwa, and I love the, the analogy he gave. Being an accountant, literally the word literally means to settle a difference. To settle a difference or to compound a difference. So the idea is you owe me if, um, if you balance your books and the person owes you 10 is it? I don't know how to. I don't know balance sheet. I'm sorry, guys. I think debit ten dollars or something. Credit five. So there's a five dollar deficit. What you call reconciliation is you 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 either take away the deficit or you credit so that both. <laughs> I hope I'm not losing anyone. I'm not an accountant. So I'm sorry. But the idea is what was owed was paid so that there is no more deficit. So when it says God reconciled, Jesus reconciled us to the Father, there's a sense in which we owed. Our debit was great. Our balance sheet was not, uh, what do accountants say when a balance debit is equal to credits? I can't remember. But our books were not, they were not accurate, right? We owed. And so Jesus, <laughs> Jesus paid that, that he credited to our account. So we're lacking. We, there was a long list. You have, you have gone to expire. <laughs> You've bought so many things. You are owing. Jesus, and that's why it says he imputed. He imputed righteousness on your account. You can think about it like a financial transaction. So that we no longer, in the scale of justice, we no longer owe. That's what reconciliation is. There, you can't take away the idea of justice from reconciliation. That there is a sense in which we actually owed something. And what happened was not that God just said, you know what, forget about it, I, I, I don't care. No, the price was paid in full. Hallelujah. That's why Jesus on the cross, he said, it is finished. Paid in, that, that word literally, um, tatastelios, it means paid in full. Paid in full. There is literally, 
No more demands. There is nothing I owe before God. I owe nothing. Only to love and to respond to that which I have received. But on the scales of justice, I owe nothing. I owe nothing. Even in this season, think about that. Before God, I, as in he paid our dues, he paid him. <laughs> we owe nothing. Amen. 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 Where was I? Yes, verse 20. And verse 21, it says, and you. Remember Ephesians 2.1? That's literally how we start. And you. Right? And you. It says, who were once. It's, it's literally the same thing. Who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Now he has what? Reconciled. It says, in the body of his flesh. He's emphasizing it again. That just in case you didn't hear what I said in verse 20. Jesus died a physical death. It says, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach inside. So that's the idea. Through the death of Jesus, his death was credited such that there is nothing you owe. You are now holy, blameless, above reproach before God. Hallelujah. And again, why is he emphasizing this physical death? Because of the prevailing message in his day. That Jesus was not fully man. He couldn't have been. If not, that would somehow contaminate his deity. That's the assumption. But that was their assumption. He now says, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And the idea, is he teaching somehow that against the permanence of salvation? No, that's not what he's doing. Remember what we looked at in Galatians when he talks like this. The expectation is that, and his confidence is that they will. Remember when we looked at it in Galatians where it says that if you seek to be justified by the law, Christ has become to you of none effect. And it says we believe that this, is, this doesn't apply to you. Again, we looked at a few of that in Hebrews 6, in Hebrews 10, when statements are this are, like this are made. And Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, goes on to say we are confident. It says even though we speak in this manner, we are confident of better things concerning you, things that concern salvation. So, in truth, salvation and perseverance go hand in hand. Perseverance would always accompany genuine faith. It's not an if or, no. You can't have genuine faith without persevering. Remember the parable of the sower. Out of the four, the only one that persevered was the one that was planted on good soil. And that was literally from the moment of planting. It was talking about receptiveness to the word. So, the one that didn't listen, that one, birds even came and they didn't even start. But the ones that were planted on rocky soils, the ones that were planted on um, um, amongst weeds, pay attention to that parable carefully. It was at the point of planting, meaning right from the moment they received the message, there was a problem. So he's not talking about a believer then falling away. No, 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 no. That's not what is going on here. Again, Hebrews 6, we would look at... Um, how how long does our, what is the expiry date of salvation? Maybe that would be the title of that. Does salvation have an expiry date? But the idea is that genuine faith is always accompanied by perseverance. The believer continues. The believer is grounded. The believer is steadfast. What there's a guy. His name is. I he made a comment on this verse and. I love what he said, and I'll, I'll read it so that we have an idea of what I'm trying to say. It says, Pridham comments on these challenging verses as follows. The reader would find, on a careful study of the word, that it is the habit of the spirit to accompany 
the fullest and most absolute statements of grace by warnings which imply a ruinous failure on the part of someone who normally stands, who nominally rather, who nominally stands in the faith. Warnings which grate harshly on the ears of insincere profession of God, maybe I'll speak it in Yoruba. Warnings which grate harshly on the ears of insincere profession are drunk willingly as medicine by the godly. So do you see what he's saying? That to this something like this would, would apply differently to the audience. For someone who identifies with the church, for instance, the Paul says, false brethren on our way crept in to spy on our liberty. Things like this, he says, it will be, it will be resistant. <laughs> he says, French is acceptable. It will resist them. It will resist them. He says, but to the ones who are truly saved, it is like fresh medicine. It reminds you. It says, the aim of all such teaching as we have here is to encourage faith and condemn by anticipation reckless and self-confident professors. People who merely identify with the church. We looked at that in 1 John 2. They, they went out from among us to show that they were not from among us because if they were truly from among us, they would have stayed. So genuine salvation is marked by perseverance. The point of scriptures like this helps to, number one, strengthen your faith as a, as a true believer in Christ, and number two, to help you identify false believers. Amen. Hebrews 6, get ready. Verse 24, it says, I rejoice now. Wow, we're still in verse 13. <laughs> I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Oh, what are you saying? You literally just said Jesus reconciled. What do you mean what is, what is lacking? Is there something lacking? So, of course, it's not referring to the atoning sacrifice. That has been paid in full. There is nothing lacking in the sacrifice of, of the cross. What he's saying here is, for instance, you see when, when Jesus appeared to Paul and says, so, so, why do you persecute who? Me. Who was Paul killing? The believers. So there is a sense in which Jesus identifies with the sufferings of the body. Jesus identifies with the sufferings of the body. And so Paul looks at, at all the suffering that Christians are expected to go through for the sake of Jesus. And he says, yes, we partake in the sufferings of Christ. So Jesus suffered for the salvation of the church. There is a sense in which we as believers today, right? He told Timothy, all who desire to live God in life will suffer persecution. So there is a sense in which we today, we face persecution, suffering and resistance for the advancement of the world. And in that sense, we carry on in the like spirit of Christ. So when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings to fill up what is lacking, it doesn't mean that what Jesus did was not enough to save his soul. He's simply saying the work of God, of the work of Jesus goes on today through the church. I think that makes sense, right? It says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you. We looked at that in Ephesians 4. The word stewardship or economia in the Greek, it means an administration. So think or a, a, a dispenser. The best way to think about this is a waiter in a restaurant. The chef cooks, the people order, the waiter simply, he administers the food. He administers the food to the, to the guests or to the customers. So Paul says, I have received a stewardship from God on your behalf. 
And we looked at that in Ephesians 4. Again, listen to that if you, you, um, you can't remember what we talked about. But the idea is we receive gifts for the sake of the church. And in that sense, we also become the gifts. Remember we talked about that. So there is a sense in which the, the individual receives the gift of apostleship or the administration to be an apostle or to be a prophet, to be an evangelist. But it is for the sake of the church. And in that sense, he becomes, because the gift is in him and through him, he becomes or she becomes the gift to the body. And in Paul's case, it was specifically for the proclamation of God's eternal plan. That's the consummation of all things, Jews and Gentiles in Christ. So in verse 26, it says, The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. I'm sure we've said this so much that everybody here that has been following already knows what this verse means, right? What is the mystery that has been hidden from ages? Jews and Gentiles reconciled by faith in Christ. Oton. So that was the mystery which was not readily made known in the Old Testament. It was there. But like I told you, it was silent, meaning it wasn't well proclaimed or it was hidden. So it was in a sense covered. But in the proclamation of the gospel, the ultimate plan of God in Christ to save both Jews and Gentiles has now been revealed. It says to them, God willed <coughs> to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what Christ in you the hope of glory. <laughs> there is a lot to say. Christ in you, meaning Christ in the Gentiles, right? Because that's largely the audience he's talking to. He says, God to the saints, God willed, it pleased God to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you. Remember we looked at the idea of the holy place in Ephesians, that for the, for the Jew reading this, he'll be like, literally, God is dwelling in a Gentile, an uncircumcised Gentile. Of course, over the course of 2,000 years, the weight of a verse like this has maybe it's lost his, its punch. But for the Jew reading this, or for the Gentile reading this, Christ in you, Christ in me, literally, indwelt by Christ. He now sees what the hope of glory. And what did I say glory is? I'm talking about the consummation of our salvation in which our bodies will be changed, the glorification of the believer, as well as our identification in Christ when he is exalted over everything. That is the hope of glory we have, that Jesus would someday, right, upon his return, of course, we already see all things, we see the church exercising his authority over all things, but there is a sense in which upon the return, he would be exalted over all, or he indeed we would see rather because he has been exalted over all we would see all things put under his feet and we would identify in that exaltation or in that reality that is the hope of glory that we have so the mystery basically of what paul is saying is that i have been made a minister to show all believers what god's plan is for both jews and gentiles and it is him we preach warning every man teaching every man, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And so you see in the presentation of the gospel, warning, 
For the unbeliever, there is a warning. In the in in the in the message of the gospel, what do we do? Too there is teaching. So in the presentation we warn, in the presentation we teach. And then what does he say? That we may present. You see some 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 idea of a priest offering up sacrifices that we may present every man perfect. So immediately he brings himself into the equation and he makes himself accountable for these people. So there is there is an accountability to which we have been called to in ministry. That the life it's it's literally about the lives of men and the goal is to be able to give account of everyone before God. I would never forget an experience that happened in one of my first major spiritual leadership roles. This was in my I think my 200 my second year in school and I was the head of a subunit in my service unit and it was we were having like a morning prayers and the holy spirit just minister to me said open your eyes I said okay He says look around no hala he says and then spirit of god if anything happens to any one of these people i will hold you responsible i <laughs> i just I, i i i stood up i said ah Wala <laughs> what, what's going on? And the way the way it sounded in my heart, it's not, you know, sometimes let's say you're in devotion, I say, Daddy, Abba, Pada, I love you. And you're like, Daddy, this one it was like the way you know you talk to your house boy. Like <laughs> I'm like, ah, okay, no wahala now. <laughs> no wahala. So there, there is that sense in which as a minister of the gospel. you are literally accountable for life and what is the goal to present every man perfect in Christ man and woman right let me go beyond my translation man and woman perfect in Christ it says we warn we teach so that we may present them because it's not just it's not like whatever no there is you have as a minister you have a personal stake in the response of people to the gospel and that's why you can't just let it fall you are accountable for the lives of men and women before god so take it seriously and that's why i told you in christian identity the key is beloved we are loved of god we love one another in ministry is faithfulness can you do what i asked you to do if i say oh i'm going out make sure i i love the analogy i can't remember where i heard it from he was talking about ministry and the idea is which if um, i think yes, it was it was pastor pastor Aaron on purpose that if i employ a security guard and i say i'm traveling for two months when i come back i don't want anything missing right i don't want anything missing and i travel and i come back and i enter my 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 room and wow you've repainted everywhere interesting i have a new bed sheet i have a new mattress ah, you even changed my wardrobe wow But then I open my drawer. My passport is gone. <laughs> my birth certificate gone. My my graduation uh whatever my diploma gone. That security guard is not faithful. You did all those other things, but you are not faithful. Why? Because I employed you for the security of my I didn't call you to go. If I want I would have called a painter. I would have called a, an interior designer. I called you to preserve or to keep my things safe. So there is a sense in which ministry should be marked by faithfulness. It's not just oh what did you end up doing? You see this in Acts. 
Paul was about to go um, to to go to I think Isaiah or so, and the Holy Spirit twice said no. If Paul went, people would have been saved, healings would have happened, but he would not be in the will of God, and he had to go to Macedonia. Of course, the very first day or the very first moment he got there, he was arrested, <laughs> but it was still the will of God. Faithfulness, faithfulness, faithfulness. So it's not just about what can I do for for God or what. Let me look around. Just look around. Okay, what can no? What did God ask you to do? What did God ask you to do? It says Moses in Hebrews says Moses was a faithful steward in the house of God. What did Moses do? He ministered the condemnation of death. <laughs> that was that was his ministry. <laughs> you read Second Corinthians three. It says that we we are ministers of the spirit, not of the letter, but the letter, but not ministers of condemnation. So he said Moses was a minister. <laughs> I don't know if you've thought about that before. That was literally his his responsibility to minister the law. Of course, the law was good and all of that, and would 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 see would see more of that when we get to Second Corinthians three and and Hebrews two, but. In a sense, Moses' responsibility, he did it well. Isaiah did his job well. John the Baptist, what was his job? Simple, announce the Messiah. He did it well, faithfulness. We too as believers, we've been called to do the work, or God has called us to do certain things. Be faithful. As touching the lives of men, you will give account, so be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful. Amen. It says, to this end, I also labor. So do you see that? To this end, I also labor. What's that word labor? It's the word kupiao in the Greek. It sounds like, <laughs> I don't even know what it sounds like. What's the what's the word? That it means to feel fatigue. Literally to work hard to the point where you are weary. A laborer. A laborer. Have you seen laborers in Korea? Have you seen laborers at the end of the day? The only thing that can satisfy them is a gege bread and cook. <laughs> a gege bread and cook. It says, I labor. Striving. What's that word striving? Agonizomai. It literally means to struggle, to literally compete for a prize. So if I says, I labor, then he says, I strive. I labor, I strive. So he's already making it clear that this work is, is not uh, is not child's play. I'm laboring. I am striving according, but it's not just in my own ability. What do I say? According to his working, which works in me mightily. So there is grace to do the work, but then we respond. So God calls you to do something. There is grace, but you respond. And in the response, in ministry, is labor, is striving. Why? Because it's the lives of men. It's the lives of men. I think I will end on this note because the way I'm looking at this time, the way it's looking at me, we're not in agreement at all. <laughs> I cannot enter chapter two. But I think there's a good place to stop. Colossians, <laughs> last, last, we're going to cook. We have, this is already another extra part I've created, but... Anyways, <laughs> Colossians, so far, what do we see emphasized all through? We see, number one, the exaltation of Christ or the supremacy of Christ over all things. He's not just another God. He's not another means to the Father. He's not another being in the cosmos 
to which we can we just is one of the means to which we gain no the fullness of deity dwells in him the fullness of deity dwells in him he is preeminent he is first of our creation first of our over um over death in the resurrection he is first of our the church by him through him for him everything exists amen and then we 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 took a detour and we talked about ministry how there is a sense in which if we identify as ministers of the gospel which we all should there is a there is there is a seriousness it comes with to which we labor we strive we see ourselves as accountable so that like see yourself invested that i want to present these people that god has committed to my care i want to present them as perfect before god in christ the word perfect literally just means mature complete lacking nothing amen all right so i think this is a good place to stop or to pause we're going to look more on the deity of christ in chapter 2 he goes on to actually talk a lot more about it but yeah colossians portrays the deity the humanity the fullness of christ his sufficiency over all things hallelujah any questions before we round up any questions before we round up all right so let's 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 <laughs> say chuk all right let's let's pray so think on these things um this one chapter is there's a lot to reflect on right so think on these things let's pray um our father and our god thank you so much thank you for your word thank you for the book of colossians thank you because in it we see who jesus really is as the image of the invisible god as first born of our creation stepping into creation and by by virtue by by implication being exalted above it all thank you for our identification in him thank you that we have been forgiven thank you that we we in him we've been we've been made to hope for that glory that glory which is revealed because he is in us i pray that we are able to reflect on all we've learned today and apply it to our lives even as we study the remaining chapters of this book in jesus name amen